Welcome to the Tech Humanist Show, a multimedia format program exploring how data and technology shape the human experience. I'm your host, Kate O'Neill. This week, thinking of privacy as something that you fight for, not just for yourself, I think really keeps things moving forward and keeps the importance of it. We're talking with Callie Schrader, an attorney in privacy and data security, a privacy advocate, and self-described diehard nerd. I think we, many of us can relate to that. Uh, I love this part. Her brief stint as a wedding singer led her to wonder if she had violated copyright law, an interest which transitioned into tech law broadly and privacy law specifically. While in law school, Schrader interned for FTC Commissioner Julie Brill, published an article on consent issues and IRBs in the Colorado Technology Law Journal, among other accomplishments and distinctions. She developed a focus on consumer protection issues, surveillance, data breaches, and freaking people out at parties. Originally from Whitefish, Montana, Callie holds an undergraduate degree in peace studies from Whitworth University. Among the certifications she holds are privacy designations for the U.S., Europe, and Canada. Talking about the copyright law around the wedding singing, so that leads you into tech law broadly. So it's like you're interested in the copyright application, but how does that then translate into becoming interested in tech law and privacy? Uh, it was it was an interesting shift. I started taking copyright and IP classes in law school just because I thought that was interesting, given my background. And part of what got me into tech more broadly and into privacy specifically was I really loved the professor I had for copyright law. So I just started taking more and more of his classes. His name is Paul Ohm. He now heads up tech law and policy division over at Georgetown. Shout uh, out to Paul Ohm. All right. He's great. <laughs> But he, because he's got a programming background, he taught some really fascinating classes. So we had a Jan term class on technology law and coding for lawyers, privacy for lawyers. He taught a computer crimes class. And oh, that sounds really those, fascinating. Oh, it was so cool. I loved that <laughs> class. I read a lot about Snowden for a stretch. And, and through that, I broadly got more and more interested in privacy, more and more interested in surveillance tech. I joined and later worked for the Colorado Technology Law Journal, and that led to me getting more and more into these, these tech issues. So it, it kind of came about by accident. I've never been a particularly techie person. I'm a privacy and tech lawyer who will openly admit, because I, I know it's a huge mistake to pretend you know more than you do. I, <laughs> I don't know how to code. I'm trying to teach myself and I'm very slow because I'm not good about setting aside practice time. <laughs> but I just find the area so fascinating. And and now I'm deep in the weeds of it. Increasingly so, right? You have certifications in privacy as a, what does the CIPP stand for? Remind us. It's the Certified Information Professional. Okay. And, I believe. And you have privacy that. Professional. Information Privacy Professional. Uh, say that a few times fast, I guess. Uh, right. So you have that designation applying to, is it Canada, the U.S., and Europe? Are those those three? Uh, Canada, U.S., Europe, and now I have the CIPM, which is the the Privacy Management, and the FIP, which is the Fellow of Information Privacy. I Full disclosure, part of why I have so many certifications is because I worked for the IAPP after law school, and while I was working there, I could take the tests for, for free when they offered them. So That's great. That's that's part of why. I, I just took a test every single time they offered the chance to. That's smart. I, I remember I used to work at a language school, and one of the perks we had was that we got to take free language tests. I just kept, oh. I just kept racking up all kinds of language uh, classes oh, and that's amazing. certifications. So, uh, you know, but as you've gotten deeper into that, and you have all these certifications, and you are working in the space, it's become a more interesting space. I mean, every year, it seems like it becomes a more interesting space. So you've got, oh, you know, GDPR hitting the scene in, what was it, 2018? Yeah, yeah. My my big projects when I was at the IAPP, the the GDPR had been passed and was going to go into effect shortly, and so we were doing a lot of redrafting the the EU documentation and trying to put out guidance and really interpret how that was going to be applied. So I was doing all of the prep work at the IAPP, and then jumped to a firm afterwards where I was doing more of the practical client guidance on 
how to be compliant before the effective date hit. Oh, okay. So, okay. I was going to ask you to sort of walk us through what that kind of, what that type of work looked like. But I think so many of us received emails notifying us that it was coming, that we probably have a <laughs> sense of what that looked like. Well, what was that like boots on the ground? Was that what that was? Is a lot of guidance and handholding about who you're going to have to notify and by when and stuff like that? Or was it it, it was. It was that. a lot a lot of working directly with clients that way. And a lot of it was really building out an internal privacy program for clients that for a lot of U.S.-based clients, it's not that they were purposely negligent when it came to data protection or data mapping practices. They just had never had any real regulatory motivation to pay attention to that. And so it always fell by the right. wayside when it came right. to allocating resources. So we were building a lot of programs from the bottom up. We were doing data mapping for the first time in companies. You know, they were figuring out exactly where all the information that they collected went and what they collected and why they used it and what legal bases we could use to justify that right. or whether they needed right. to start deleting stuff. And it was it was interesting. You get a really good idea of kind of the inner workings of companies and start to develop a lot of strategies for figuring out what questions to ask and when you need to push a little deeper on on things. Nobody likes to admit that they may not know exactly where everything goes within their company, but particularly for large companies or companies that collect a lot of data, it's extremely common. Yeah, I would imagine. And so, and then of course we have um, the California Privacy Act that comes on that came online what January this year? Mm-hmm. Is that right? So yep. was it again sort of a repeat of GDPR? That was interesting. We had a really big split with the CCPA. For GDPR, I feel like it kind of put the fear of God in a lot of U.S. companies. So everyone was scrambling for compliance. We had a huge influx of people asking to help them with compliance before the due date hit. With CCPA, I saw a real divergence in approach. There were were a lot of companies that were very responsible and came to us wanting us to help them be compliant with the CCPA right as the enforcement date hit so they were ready to go. And then not necessarily my clients, but I, I did see in quite a lot of instances, there seemed to be more companies that were willing to gamble when it came to compliance that mm-hmm. way. I don't know if that's because they they thought the attorney general wouldn't be able to enforce en masse or huh. whether they thought that, you know, their their privacy practices were maybe not fully compliant, but probably good enough to skate by for a while and kind of wanted to get the lay of the land before figuring out resources. But it was surprising seeing that split from the GDPR. And now with the CPRA on the ballot, it'll be even more interesting because if that passes, it it will definitely raise the amount of enforcement actions. <laughs> yeah. And so did it, do you feel like, do you, did you observe anecdotally that it changed the discourse at all when the GDPR suits started happening and that, that the enforcement was happening and, and Google and other companies were actually receiving fines. Was that changing the way companies were taking it seriously? From what I've seen, yes. And and in particular, one of the things I noticed is that clients, even of smaller middle, mid-level companies that maybe hadn't paid much attention to privacy or data security before, were paying attention to these lawsuits. They were coming to us saying, hey, I just read about this. Should I be worried? Do I need to change things? What should I be looking at? I mean, for example, we just had the Shrems 2 case happen. I had a bunch of clients reach out to me proactively before we had issued our statement on it saying, this seems like it changes things. What do we need to do? How yeah. should we take care of this? And and frankly, it was pretty refreshing to see that so many of our clients were now actively paying attention to this on their own as an issue. Yeah, that makes sense. And so one thing I'm really curious about to talk about with you, and, and I, I want to spill that you told me via email as we were prepping for the show, you said that you have minors in both philosophy and theology in, in your undergrad. And so you occasionally get a little into privacy affecting the nature of society and humanity. And you said, but I will try to reel it in. And I'm like, no, <laughs> don't reel that in. That's exactly what we want to bring to the show. So I guess, you know, one question I have for you in that more esoteric philosophical bent is, do you think that the way we conceive of privacy has changed or is changing or is due to change? What externalities do you think kind of come into the way that humans conceive of privacy and what is going to happen over the next few years, over the next few milestones? Yeah. Not a small question, I understand. Not a small question, but an important one. Um, To preface, there's I'm a little split in my professional and personal approaches to privacy. So obviously, personally, I'm I'm 
very, very privacy protective. And I'm very loud about that online. <laughs> and personally, I, I believe myself to maintain those values, but I, I need to channel them in practical ways that clients can actually use. Like there's, there's the idealistic form of privacy that I think I have in my personal life. And then there's also the practical form of, well, okay, but this company is not going to just stop collecting data. Right, right. And so how can I, how can I guide them in a way that makes them do it as responsibly as possibly and as ethically and transparently as possible while meeting regulatory requirements? So this, I'm going to go full into my personal answer on (laughs) privacy perspectives. But so I I do believe that our approach toward privacy has been fundamentally changing. I believe that for many years, it's been changing in the direction where people haven't been paying attention to it and have lost a good amount of the kind of privacy that we we were used to. And part of that comes from the development of technology. You know, we have so much more prevalent technology that's really permeated every area of life. You have, you know, there's smart fridges on the market. It was really hard for me to find non-connected kitchen devices when I was redoing Yeah, we just bought an air conditioner, uh, an in-window air conditioner for our apartment. And it was so hard to pick one that didn't have, you know, smart features built in. I'm like, I don't want that. I don't want a smart air conditioner. Yeah, I had to get a new television. Oh my gosh, it was such a nightmare trying to find one that wasn't a smart TV and wasn't connected (laughs) somehow. And it's it's so hard. Good luck next time you have to buy a toilet. I mean, oh, I know. It's ridiculous (laughs) all over the place. But yeah, because of all of those changes and because it's so interwoven with just aspects of our daily life, I, I feel like there's been this gradual shift in that where before you you got to be a lot more deliberate about what aspects of who you are and what pieces of information about you you shared with different people in different settings. Now it's just ingrained. And so the, the choice is gone in a lot of ways. But I, I'll also say that I've seen a much more positive trend in privacy in that there's been a lot more pushback in in at least recent years. So some of it's regulatory. The GDPR is a great, great prompt for considering privacy concerns. Um, the U.S. is very sectoral in its privacy approach, but there's been individual state laws that are incredible. Like the, the Illinois um, Biometric Information Privacy Act is, is great and having some really cool enforcement. CCPA is... Uh, prompting some really great conversations around what information we protect and how we protect it and what mm-hmm. level of control mm-hmm. we have and whether that should be left to people. On a societal level, the interesting thing for me is seeing younger generations and what their approach is to privacy and to being watched. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I'm I'm millennial, so I grew up in a little bit of the cusp. You know, when I was very young, we had a computer in my house when I was probably 10 or 11, but they were so old and you didn't use them all that often for a long stretch. You used them for, you know, word documents, but you didn't necessarily use them for internet all that often. And we really didn't have smartphones in the way that we do now. And, and living through all those changes and seeing how gradually that happens and how suddenly every aspect of your life is watched is really interesting to me, particularly seeing this ne- this current generation that is growing up with all of that just already existing, already in place, you know. Uh, but but one thing that I find so interesting is the ways that they find to push back against that. There's, there's a lot of really creative uh, loopholes and workarounds and kind of hacks of tech that uh, younger generations are using. So even though they've been put into this world where they're always watched, they're actively fighting for privacy and for space to kind of figure out who they are without eyes on them all the time. Yeah. And I just think that's yeah. really valuable. It's such an interesting but, dichotomy because it, it is a more connected generation uh, in many ways. And uh, I think they, they are inherently the younger you skew. I know that there are some differences generationally where uh, some actually prefer less online time, but I think in general, like I'm Gen X. So the, the younger you skew in general away from my generation and above you know, you see a lot more native sort of familiarity with being online. But yes, you're right. I yeah. mean, then those attitudes also change. Like there, there isn't an inherent acceptance of the trade-off of that. I'm, I'm going to give up so much of my self and, you know, what quantifies who I am uh, so that you can then sell to me more effectively. Yep. <laughs> 
Well, it's interesting. And I I agree with, I think I'm probably very aligned with your your distinction on the personal and professional level. Uh, The professional level is a really interesting one, though, because I think you do have to have this kind of pragmatic it's not it's not defeatism, I don't think, but it's a pragmatic view that you know that companies are going to collect data and they are going to use it in aggregate and in segments to be able to better understand targeting offers or better understand even just to improve user experiences you know inherent to to the uh, to the pages and sites that they serve up. So, yeah. so how do you now the, how do you take over from the, the personal approach and carry it over into the professional? Like, where do you go with that? Well, one thing is that I, I'm really grateful that my super privacy protective perspective from my personal life can carry over in a ethical and responsible way where I'm still advising my clients well when I'm telling them to practice data minimization and, you know, make sure that they're only collecting the information they need and that they're putting in really good security protocols and that they're very clear and transparent about what they're doing and honest with their users. I like to push really hard for people, for the companies to understand what's going on with their data because a lot of companies use vendors that are just common. You know, you use Google Analytics or you you use uh, different storage vendors and share information with people that are using behavioral advertising algorithms and things like that. And so being able to advise them and have discussions with them where I'm saying, I really think you should evaluate what this costs you an effort in disclosing all of this and making sure you're doing it correctly versus what you're getting from it. I've, I've had some really interesting discussions with clients about the value of behavioral advertising and that I don't think there's much value in it. And <laughs> but, not to mention protecting it against breaches and leaks. So, you know, the risk. Yeah, the more information in you have, the more risk you have of a breach and the more liability you have. Mm-hmm. You know, if if you have a data breach and all you've collected about your clients is uh, name and mailing address for the services, that's hugely different than if you've also collected their race and gender and income and financial account information and uh sexual orientation and Mm -hmm. people collect so much nowadays just because they can because the technology is capable of that and until you push back a little bit and challenge them and say okay but why that why do you need that why do you want that and really highlight for them that they're raising their own risk that's something that helps me (laughs) kind of justify to myself the work I do because I, I can see and I know that there are some privacy really really purists that would argue that me working with clients that collect data is unethical. And while I can understand the motivation behind that argument, I, I find a lot more value in engaging and making the world more privacy protective by talking to companies that are engaged with it and trying to make them do it in a responsible way than I do in just pulling myself out entirely and not engaging. Yeah. And beyond that, yeah. like I can advise my clients and I do advise my clients and I want to do do right by them and do right by the people whose information they're collecting. But you also can do other things. I mean, I, I also read a bunch of policy proposals and send in um, formal comments on privacy laws that are being proposed or uh, different approaches to cases or, you know, we we discuss this all the time <laughs> with, with the different privacy community, you know, the, the privacy to be very active in debates and discussions about regulations and cases and proposals. And, and you can still be engaged in all of that and push for kind of regulatory and social change while also doing the practical work of telling a client in this circumstance that you're doing right now, here's how we make this safer. Yeah. And I think, you know, in my own consulting and my own work, I find that that conversation about uh, the increasing risk when you're talking about more and more data is a really useful one to have at the sort of C-suite level. Um, but also, mm-hmm. it seems like even just at a strategy level, saying that you know you shouldn't collect data if you can't think of an aligned reason why you would want to have it aligned between yeah. what benefits you and what benefits the customer or the person outside the company. If it's only mm-hmm. benefiting you and it's not going to benefit them in any way ever, <laughs> then there's probably really good reason not to even bother collecting it. Completely agree. And also the whole <laughs> mentality where collected just so you have it just in case, that's such an irresponsible perspective, <laughs> both from a general privacy perspective and for them. Why would you want piles more information than you're even using? It just increases your risk. Right. 
Right. We have a question from uh, one of our followers here, one of the audience members, David Ryan Polgar, who I love. Uh, so should social media platforms offer data portability to move valuable data across different platforms? What do you think about that? I, I think more and more as social media has changed in, in what it does in different contexts, I, I th think absolutely. Um, I do think partly, let me clarify that, partly because people use different social media as, as tools, both professionally and creatively now, as well as to connect with other people and for networking and for other services. So, you know, artists and photographers constantly share their artwork through social media and uh, writers practice their craft through social media and people that are in professional spheres. Like I constantly, I'm not necessarily recommending this cause I'm sure they get annoying sometimes, but I constantly write long Twitter threads kind of analyzing privacy issues or legal issues that I see because I want people to engage with it more. Mm -hmm. So I, I absolutely see the value in data portability and in making sure that you can preserve those things. Should you leave a platform for whatever reason, um, I don't know how useful it always is. I think it's it's very useful in that you get a copy of everything that you've put there. Mm -hmm. I don't know how portable it is because I don't know. Like if I if I took all of my information from Twitter tomorrow, I don't know that I could actually transfer that to another social yeah, media platform. Right. I, I don't think they're compatible in a lot of ways. So I think there there are absolutely uses to data portability. I think there's absolutely value to it. And I think there's value to forcing the company to go through the exercise of saying, we know where all of your information is and we, we've organized this internally. Sure. Um, and, you know, just to make sure that internally they're practicing good data structuring and are able to track all of that. But yeah, I, I don't know about actually transferring it to other platforms. That's kind of an interesting question. Right. It is an interesting no, question. I'm going to keep thinking about that. <laughs> also, I'm wondering what you think about the own your own data sort of movement. Where do you stand on that concept? The notion that eventually at some point we may be able to move to a model where people are in control of their own data and they can be paid for it and, and that sort of thing. What, where are you on, on that? So I understand the appeal of it. I, I absolutely understand that it's it, it can be a kind of easier way to wrap your mind around how data works to think of it as a piece of property that yeah. you own. I, I absolutely get the appeal of it. I think that there's some very thoughtful people that support that view. I don't. But the reasons that I don't are, first of all, I think that puts way too much responsibility on the individual. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't even know how much information gets collected and by whom half the time. So having to track that or parcel out portions of your data for different uses, I think just puts too much of both a, it puts too much of a time responsibility on people, certainly. I mean, that's a hugely time consuming process, but it also puts a lot of research responsibility on people. Like I work in privacy, so I do a lot of research into the trade-offs of sharing information uh, just for my work, which is great. But other people have full-time jobs in other areas and are taking care of small children and are dealing with family members and have lives to live. They don't necessarily have time to sit down and do all of that. The other issue I have is it sets up an inequality when it comes to being paid for your information. You know, who's going to have the most incentive to share their information, even if they wouldn't normally if they're getting paid, it's it's going to be people with lower incomes. Right. And so right. that sets up a system where the wealthy can kind of afford to keep their information private and the less wealthy have a lot more incentive to say, I I don't love this, but I need to pay rent. So here, pay me for this, I'll, I guess. So I don't like that split either. And then the, the other concern I have with it is I don't know how much bargaining power you would have with big companies. Even if you're the owner of your information, big companies are still big companies and they have a lot of power. And depending on what they're offering, you may not actually get that much for your information. You may not get a ton of money or value for it because, you know, if you don't want to sell it, there's a hundred thousand other people that are willing to, and they'll do it at X price. So I just think there are a lot of complications with that approach that don't necessarily benefit people in the way it's intended to benefit people. Yeah, no, that, yeah. that's a wonderful, thorough, well thought out answer. And I, I think another aspect of the point, the, the last point you were just making is that I, I've seen the numbers somewhere that suggest that individually your Facebook data, for example, would be worth like 20 cents or 40 cents or something like yeah. that, right? <laughs> Compared to, you know, in the aggregate, what Facebook is going to get in in terms of monetizing it through the advertising platform. 
yeah, and being able to offer the the hyper targeting that it does. So yeah, so I mean, there's absolutely very little incentive to educate yourself and spend the time and and become a merchant of your own data when it means pennies. <laughs> yep. As opposed yeah, and to frankly, just on a personal level, I don't like working in sales, so I don't want to do it in my free time. <laughs> absolutely. Well, that's a, it's interesting. And, and uh, by the way, David, who asked us the question about the uh, portability says, great answer and loving the show. So, yes. yeah. <laughs> and also another uh, point here from Kyle Johnson is also the t- connections you have on a social network aren't portable to another. So, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I can even say, you know, for me, the the sort of model that I use, mental model that I use for who I connect with on Twitter versus Facebook versus LinkedIn, very, very different you know, kind of oh, construct, right? I'm sure that's true for most people. And so certainly it would seem very meaningless unless you were moving from a Twitter-like platform to another Twitter-like platform, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that you might be able to maintain some of the integrity of those connections, but most likely not. So that's a yeah. good point. Well, what about, you know, how do you how do you think about the emerging concerns uh, around privacy? I mean, certainly we have a lot more surveillance technology coming into uh, into being. We have, um, you know, facial recognition is an enormous topic within this space. Where do you sort of find yourself most concerned about privacy issues in emerging tech? I mean, you've you've mentioned facial recognition. I am hugely concerned with facial recognition, partly because it feels I really hope it doesn't prove to be, but it feels very much like one of those technologies where, you know, once it's out, it's you can't put it back in the the this isn't this doesn't exist. Don't use this right. category. Um, I feel I, I hope that we're still early enough in the use of facial recognition that there could be steps to restrict it and to put more responsible use cases around it. I frankly just really don't like it as a technology, partly because of, you know, there's been tons of much more informed people than than me talking about um, the the issues when it comes to identifying uh, darker skin tones mm-hmm. or uh, accuracy with non-binary or trans individuals, um, which is a huge issue because, you know, in a lot of places, including the U.S., there's, there's higher likelihood that those communities get targeted under these systems anyway. And if those also, those same communities that are being targeted also have a really high instance of inaccuracy in identification. It just, it really facilitates the opportunity for abuse of those systems. Um, so I hate that. Sure. And even beyond that, even if facial recognition worked perfectly and identified people correctly every time, I still wouldn't think we should use it because it, it really does change something about the nature of being tracked everywhere you go. It changes something about your freedom to move around a public space and, um, to, to restrict your, your information and your whereabouts and that sort of thing. And, and the, the counterpoint I hear to that all the time is, well, why would that bother you if you're not doing anything bad? But the, (laughs) I don't have anything to hide argument has never held water. I mean, this is gross. In in case there are people watching or listening who don't know why that argument doesn't hold water, would you take a moment to say why you think that I mean, I certainly feel like it doesn't hold water, yeah. but I'd love to hear you uh, give a, if you have a concise explanation as to why the notion, if you have nothing to hide, that there's no reason mm-hmm. for privacy. Why is that well, wrong? Oh, it's wrong for so many reasons. But so the best example I've heard is a little gross and I'm so sorry, but uh, <laughs> basically there's a big difference between privacy and secrecy. Secrecy is is more about concealing something you just don't want anyone to know about because because it's you know nefarious or uh, perceived badly or whatever. Privacy just means that you want to conceal it because you don't feel like sharing it. So, for example, if someone's if I'm hanging out at my friend's house and I leave, I get up to go to the bathroom there, I close the door and I close the like people know what I'm doing in there. It's not secret what's probably going on in the bathroom, but I close the door because I want privacy. That's <laughs> gross. But but beyond that, there's privacy issues when it comes to, you know, sometimes you may be just wanting to feel out something um, and not like, like kids trying to figure out what their political views are. Sometimes you want to be able to explore that or their sexual orientation. You want to be able to explore that in a safe and secure way without having to come out with a hard stance or making a decision or or having people observing you because there's also been multiple studies that just the act of being observed and knowing you're being observed changes behavior and changes thinking and doesn't allow people to freely 
uh, express themselves or explore ideas. And, and it's a really stifling situation. So a good portion of why I oppose that is the, the stifling aspect of it. But yeah, when it comes down to the I've got nothing to hide argument, that also changes hugely based on context. I mean, communities like refugees are surveilled hugely. After 9-11, Muslim communities were surveilled on an incredible scale. And uh, communities of color and people with different sexual orientations or gender presentations are often surveilled much more. And they may well want more privacy. And it's not because they're doing anything wrong. It's because there are elements of the society around them that will punish them for the not wrong things that they're doing and that they're observed doing. And so the the social context around that is also hugely important. Just because you don't think what you're doing is wrong doesn't mean that the society around you won't react badly to it. And you should be able to exercise your rights that way without constant surveillance. So that's, well, that's I think that's a, a wonderful answer. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like you, you know, you almost could just say, well, it, it shows a tremendous amount of privilege to be able to make the statement yes. that you have nothing to hide. But you gave really crisp and clear examples of that, so I think that's very helpful. So, but when, especially when you were talking about facial recognition and other biometric technology, I think what what uh, the big concern there is, you know, those are things you just can't change. So it, yeah. it's another, it's one thing to be able to yeah, change your email address. I can't address. get a new face. Right. Like, like if that gets compromised somehow, it's going to cost me a lot of surgery to get a new face. And I like this one. So I don't want to. And like, I can't change my DNA. I can't change my fingerprints. These are, these are so immutable. If it comes to like an account being breached, I can change my password and mm-hmm. I can change my, my username if I need to. But these things are so much more immutable and they're so much more set and they're so much more tied to our actual identities and who we consider ourselves to be that I think the level of sensitivity around them is just so much higher. And so the level of care should be equally as high. And one of the big problems with facial recognition is that the technology has developed so quickly that there really aren't any regulations in place around it. So they've been able to come up in this vacuum of, of accountability, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not saying that there's never, ever a circumstance where facial recognition could be useful or could be used for good purposes. I, I don't know enough to say that yeah. definitively, but, but for sure, we're not always, in an environment where there's checks on that yet. And that's yeah. what really scares me. There's always at least one example that, that someone's willing to come up with, you know, and, and I, yep. when I had the um, uh, super viral tweet around the 10 year challenge last year and was making the rounds of the news that's programs, right. I was using the example of the, um, the, the case study of facial recognition having been used in uh, in India to track down missing kids. But of course, we know, mm-hmm. like, there were, there was a very limited uh, experiment. Uh, we don't really know how successful it truly was, uh, you know, how successful it was with facial recognition and would not have been otherwise. When, like, there's no kind of control variable. Yeah. And, and the harms greatly exceed the benefits in this. And I don't think, I, I don't think that's a, even a controversial statement. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, it is interesting to see that, you know, some cities have had some luck with banning facial recognition. Uh, and, and as you mentioned, the Illinois uh, biometric uh, regulation. So do you foresee a lot more sort of city by city, state by state kind of things coming into play that way within the U.S.? I do. I know that there's there's a big debate raging about whether there's going to be a federal privacy law in the next year or two years or whatever. Um, I don't know what's going to happen there. Frankly, I don't know that the federal government's going to get itself together enough to pass anything substantial. But regardless, we, we had a few things been, on our hands right now. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's some other stuff going on. Um, regardless, we've had a sectoral system for a long time when it comes to privacy. And so I, I've been really encouraged by the actions I've seen statewide and the attention I've seen statewide to these issues. Um, I would love for more states to adopt something like like BIPA and uh, start enforcing against biometric privacy violations. Um, I, I like what's happening with CCPA in general because it moves the conversation forward and it moves uh, thought about what rights people have to their information and then what companies are required to do if they want to use that information. Um, I think that there will probably be more sectoral and statewide regulations when it comes to facial recognition. You know, Seattle's got that in place. I know Colorado's been looking into that. Um but I, I wish it would move a little quicker. 
What, it, what makes you optimistic about the, what you see happening around data privacy law? Is there anything that, that you kind of look at and think that's what needs to happen and I'm glad to see it happen and maybe you want to encourage it to go faster, but where are you most optimistic around it? You know, one thing that's made me really optimistic is just the level of engagement by people that don't work in this space. Um, I think that's surprising to a lot of people because this seems, I feel like privacy can seem like an intimidating space because it can seem very techy and it can seem very, you know, I don't know how to code or I don't know how to program, so I probably won't understand this. Or, you know, uh, it, it can be very easy to fall into kind of a, nihilist approach to privacy and say, well, I can't control everything, so why bother? But I've seen a lot of engagement with people when it comes to privacy rights and when it comes to, hey, what should I be asking for and what should I be fighting for and what should I be looking for? Um, and that has been really encouraging just on kind of a ground level. People seem to care more about this. When it comes to regulatory actions, you know, I, I do love that there's been multiple proposals for a federal privacy law in the U.S. I don't necessarily love all the drafts, but I love that there's that discussion happening and there's some some action there. There's a little momentum. Um, I think the GDPR was a great step, and I, I am happy that it's had the kind of impact it's had, even if it was inconvenient for people at the jump, because it, it does prompt just much more care and much more thought in what people are doing with personal information. Um, all of those I've found really encouraging. And I think the privacy space can feel kind of like a, a very David and Goliath struggle where it's big companies and big government surveillance structures that are constantly pushing against privacy. And, you know, we're just these individual attorneys or individual programmers or individual people that, are, are bothered by the structure or the system, but the fact that we've seen these regulations passed and the fact that there's been outcry against things like mass facial recognition use or, or mass surveillance or um, companies taking as much data as they're taking, I, I think that's a good sign. And that's really encouraging for me personally. That's great. And I think, you know, it, it seems like I can relate to the idea that people uh, seem to struggle with finding privacy a topic that they can get into because it seems at once abstract and arcane and like yeah. you would have to know a lot of really specific things but you have to care about these very philosophical ideas at the same time and it's a it's a tough thing it's a tough thing to, to reconcile so it's a I think it's a wonderful thing that folks like you uh, are focused on that and speaking of folks like you my uh one of my besties Tara Aaron Stoluto has commented and said, not sure if this is the right place to ask a question, but I'd love to hear what Callie has to say about the big EU Court of Justice opinion last week and what she's advising clients about how to go forward. So it seems like that sort of fits in with uh, both the conversations we were having about, you know, the professional approach in terms of guiding companies and what, what you recommend they do, but also thinking mm -hmm. about regulations and such. So what, what do you have to say uh, to Tara's question? Oh, so much has gone on since... <laughs> Since the return of Shrems, I refer to it as the reshremming in a professional talk, and I feel like that probably shouldn't stick. <laughs> but uh, I, beyond just a lot of urgent client response to different things, uh, we've we've had some practical guidance that we've issued. I personally have been rereading FISA and uh, the the EO one two triple three and different surveillance acts and all of that. Uh, practically speaking. You know, I we've been redoing privacy policies that list Privacy Shield as the sole data transfer method, and um, we've been putting SECs in place or making sure that they are in place and they're enforceable. Uh, and then we've been doing some additional work. I, I advise clients to um, put some documentation in place where they can really track, you know, this is the analysis we've done of the risks to the data subjects we collect information on, and this is what we what we think when it comes to our whether we're included under FISA scope and what the likelihood is that our information is tracked and these are the agreements we put in place with vendors and uh, you know we make sure we encrypt information in these ways. I, I think having a paper trail is extremely important right now just to show due diligence and that you've been paying attention to the issues. Um, I, I wish I'm too lawyerly to say this is for sure what you should what you need to do and then you're fine. Uh, it, there's always an it depends in there, but uh, I do think that 
showing clear effort is going to be appreciated and making sure you're still adhering to the principles that were enshrined under Privacy Shield is going to be very important. Um, I, I really hope they put out another framework soon or they put out some guidance soon because right now I feel like all of us are doing our best to responsibly guide our clients through things, but it's, it's still a very influx unsettled area. So being as responsible as possible, making sure we're doing as much as we can is kind of what I hear we're a doing. Dog. <laughs> she really wants to go outside. I think there's a squirrel. Got a, a high puppy from uh, Bruce Celery. So the dog <laughs> is already a hit. I don't know about us, but the dog is I'll, a hit. <laughs> I'll tell Lucy. She'll be very proud. We actually had a, a question that was submitted before the show started from someone on Twitter. Shay Swagger asked, I'd love to hear more about what meaningful consent looks like with data privacy. I wonder if there's anything we can borrow from sex ed about consent being affirmative, revocable, or centering care or agency. What do you have to say about if there are parallels that we can pull from the conversation about consent in terms of uh, our sexual relationships over into data privacy? I actually think that's a really interesting way to frame it. I think there's absolutely some really valuable things we can take from what we consider to be uh, correct sexual consent to, you know, consent around data. I think uh, the revocable part is important. I think it's important that it be clear. Um, transparency is always clear. Make sure that everyone engaged in the conversation knows exactly what they're discussing. Um, and the other part that I think is is actually very important is is consent to various steps of the process. So if I'm consenting to let a business use my information so I can get their services, that doesn't mean I'm okay with them sharing it with a bunch of other people. Mm -hmm. Just like if I, you know, agree to go on a date, it doesn't mean that you're coming back to my place later. So right. there's, right. there's a lot of steps in between and there's a lot of different uses of information that should be considered. So full consent, I think, is also really important when it comes to data security and privacy and making sure that there's the ability to consent to maybe some uses of information, but not all uses of information. I think that's a really important aspect that can get overlooked sometimes. The other, uh, yeah, and the how other the information is used, right? Like it, it, exactly, it, it was an example that I had written in. A, um, I shared with Shay and with you, I think, on Twitter that I had written a piece a few years ago that was mm -hmm. talking about Foursquare knowing that I was at a bar that I never searched for on Foursquare or on Google or in any way, shape or form. I didn't even know the name of the bar because I was going with a friend. We were going after an event and we walked over to this bar. He knew it. And then in the morning, I got an email from Foursquare saying, what did you think of name of bar? Oh. It was just what? I, I, until this moment, I didn't even know what the bar was called. And Every it just seemed so, yeah, it seemed so creepy and invasive to me. And what it what it made me think about was that Rape culture is so much mm -hmm. about where accountability and power resides. And the yes. fact that, you know, these, these companies like Foursquare and others that are tracking your location, even if you've said, I, I don't want you tracking it unless I've given you the incentive or the, you know, the ask right then and there, like, unless mm -hmm. I've said, I want you tracking this, I want to know where I am or where I'm going or whatever. And they're tracking yeah. it in the background at least have the common courtesy not to tell me that you've you've tracked it and so i just think it's a it's a whole disconnect around the value that the companies that are collecting this data think that they're offering versus what mm -hmm. people on the other side of the interaction believe the value to be and then the yeah. assertion of power and dominance in ways that are really weird and wrong and and so yeah, yeah. I, I think it's a really important point that shay has brought up here I agree. And I think there's actually some broader parallels you can draw from that to, to privacy in general. Like just because I consent for one company to use certain information about me in, in one way doesn't mean that I consent to all companies that do that service mm -hmm. to do the same thing. Right. You know, it's specific. It's to this one company that I'm purposely interacting with. It doesn't mean that I'm okay with it in all other contexts. And it also doesn't necessarily mean that I'm always okay with that company using my right. information over right. and over. If I go on a date with one person, that doesn't guarantee that I will go on a date with them forever anytime they feel like right. it. It means right. that you have to keep checking. And so I think the responsibility to follow up and to be clear on exactly what is being permitted is is a carryover, absolutely. A follow-up question from uh, Jenna Jordan in the comments is, is data ownership a necessary precondition to true, fully empowered consent, though? 
That's a really interesting question. I don't know if it's owners. The thing that bothers me, well, the thing, I already gave a list of things. One of the things that bothers me a little bit about thinking of data as uh, a physical, tangible good that we own is that that just doesn't track with the nature of it. It's it, it's kind of an, a renewable resource that way. It doesn't, it's, it's not like this one thing that I give this one time. It's this constantly regenerating resource. There's always more information about me. And if I share it with one person, that doesn't preclude me from sharing it with other people. And there's different limitations on it than there would be on like a physical object. And in addition, the ownership factor, I think, puts different parameters and responsibilities on the parties involved that I don't necessarily think perfectly correlate. I absolutely get why we constantly use it as, you know, data as property, because that's, that's just a much easier way to understand it. The difficult thing about information and part of frankly, why privacy law is constantly fluctuating and is such a kind of squishy area of law in some ways is that it, it just doesn't perfectly map onto property law, it it intersects constantly, but it doesn't perfectly map. And it doesn't perfectly map onto issues of, you know, contract law and liability and all of that. It, it touches all these different areas, but it doesn't perfectly form into anything. Uh, to the yeah, we don't question. we don't have very good metaphors for data. I mean, you know, exactly. We've, we've been talking for too many years about data as the new oil, and there are uh -huh. these kind of concepts of data lakes and and that sort of thing. But there's not those metaphors only go so far, and they only make so much sense. And I yeah. think you know, data as property that you can own and you can barter and you can commodify. I think as we can pretty clearly see when you start to model it out only really works when you're talking about in the aggregate as it's monetized yeah. by a corporation like Facebook as opposed to by an individual <laughs> in their own interest. I agree. I do think to the core question, thinking of it as like, if someone's getting consent from me for my information, that implies I own the information. I think that's accurate. It's just, it's not ownership in the same way as you would own a physical good. Like yeah. it, it is mine. It comes from me. It's about me. But it's not the same as saying like my house or my dogs or or whatever. So I, I don't think that assertion is wrong at all. I think that's correct. Like for consent to work, you have to go th from the base assumption that it's because it's of me and connected to me. I'm the one that gets to say whether you use it or not. But I again, it just it doesn't perfectly correlate when it comes to things like sale or or ownership in the traditional sense that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, that makes it's, sense. No, I think it's an important thing that you know this. This is why we don't have very good metaphors for this because I think there aren't enough discussions that are happening across disciplines and considerations. So I, I think mm -hmm. it's really healthy to keep talking about it so that we can find out what the nuances are and and dive into them. So I know we're getting uh, kind of close to our hour here, so I want to make sure that we get to the chance to what I think is a really important question is that what. In my work around this tech humanist concept, I'm always trying to think about how we build the best futures for the most people. Mm. And I, I wonder what you think we can do uh, around data privacy law in culture to uh, stand a better chance of bringing about the, the best futures. I think education and empowerment are both really important. So keeping the discussion about privacy as a prominent thing and and continually bringing it up and kind of keeping it at the forefront of people's minds. The other tricky thing about privacy is that it's something that's never really done. I mean, you don't you don't finally figure it out and like check a box or send in a form and then you're done with privacy and you don't have to deal with it anymore. It's an ongoing thing. It's right. kind of like uh, this is also a sad metaphor because of quarantine, but it's kind of like fitness. You know, I. If I if I want to stay on top of it, I have to keep doing it. I don't get to just hit a set point where I'm like, awesome, did, done, never have to go to the gym again. You have to maintain. And, and it, that's particularly true of privacy because it involves tech that's constantly evolving and constantly changing and, and regulations that are constantly evolving and changing. 
I think to make and I'm going to interject and and just say I think it's a challenge to us individually too because we're constantly being bombarded with opportunities to participate in things and share things and uh, divulge things about ourselves and make different trade-offs and and, uh, compromises that we have to evaluate on the fly and most people don't have the big picture to be able to make that decision in a in as sophisticated a way as they need to yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I think for a bigger picture, you know, trying to make the future better for people when it comes to privacy, you have to keep advocating really hard. I I don't know her last name because it's Twitter, but Eva made a joke the other day that uh, she doesn't like being referred to as a tireless privacy defender because she's like, I'm tired. I'm very tired. I would like a nap. <laughs> And it's true, you know, you it does get really tiring because it can feel a little bit like you're kind of pounding your head against a wall that just keeps on creeping closer to you. And there's there's only so much you can do, but it is valuable. And I think it's it's important to keep in mind that advocacy is is what keeps protect what protections we have in place. And it's what pushes for regulations and changes in privacy. And it's what uh, helps protect people and their information. And I think keeping the perspective of this isn't just for me because I'm uncomfortable with Alexa listening to me or whatever. Right. It's right. it's for people that are in more vulnerable population groups. It's for kids that are developing a sense of self and need to be able to do that safely. And it's for LGBTQ and non-binary and trans youth who who would face actual danger if privacy keeps getting reduced. And people in, in refugee communities and in, you know, uh, activists that, that get tracked. It's, it's thinking of privacy as something that you fight for, not just for yourself, I think really keeps things moving forward and keeps the importance of it to the forefront of your mind. I think it's easy to get hung up in the like, well, what do I do? I just do paperwork all day, every day. I write privacy policies nobody ever reads. <laughs> and I, I do a bunch of contract renegotiation and reread laws that no one cares about, but, but it does matter and it does make a difference. And I think keeping that in the forefront of your mind really improves things for the future and, and provides motivation for us to keep going. So that's, that's really my biggest takeaway. <laughs> that's a beautiful uh, takeaway. I think privacy as advocacy and thinking of it, you know, in the biggest, most interconnected sense is, is a beautiful way to, to close this out. So Callie Schrader, thank you so much for joining us for the Tech Humanist Show. Thanks to everyone who watched live and offered comments and questions. And uh, thanks to all the listeners out there. Please go ahead and subscribe, comment, like, wherever you see this. Please tell your friends about it. Thanks again, Callie, and uh, we'll see you next time. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to The Tech Humanist Show. You can find more information about the show's guests and links to their projects at thetechhumanist.com, where you can also find more episodes. Or you can subscribe at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kate O'Neill. Join me next time for more about how data and technology shape the human experience.